Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Take the Hill, a leadership podcast, which is going to connect you to individuals who are exhibiting leadership within their chosen field. So welcome back to the show, Dennis. Hey, Patrick. How are you? I'm doing good this morning. Angela, welcome back. <laughs> Happy Friday, everybody. Good to see your faces. It is good. So today we have the honor and pleasure to have Dr. Atia Adelik here with us. And um, I'm going to introduce you to her and learn a little bit more about her shortly. So, but I want to begin with a little bit. Um, she has a wonderful book uh, that we're going to be talking a little bit about today. I'm not going to cover the whole book, but we are going to take excerpts from it uh, just to kind of give you a little background on her story. So if you want to check it out, it's called uh, Life Worth Saving. It's a nurse's journey from sickness to healing. So, so let's begin. Let's just jump right into it. I was wired to feel. I didn't understand it back then. But now I know that who I am is a part of my purpose and to fully live in my purpose. I must feel I spend a lot of time caring for others in both my professional and personal life. And it hit me hard when I found that my life was in just as much need of caring and healing. And I think that's going to provide a good framework you know, for a lot of what we're going to be talking to today. And I want to welcome to the show, Dr. Atia. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you here, Dr. A. So, so Atia is a nurse, a community engagement practitioner, and she helps people in communities thrive in spite of challenges and barriers. Right? Her passion has led her to form HCD Consulting where she leverages more than 25 years of experience as a healthcare professional and servant leader. Right? She's also the creator of Leading with Wellbeing, which is a platform designed to support women in achieving their goals without sacrificing their health. Right? Dr. A right, has an extensive background, right? and again, in health and service. Right? She's a graduate degree in nursing, administration from Waynesburg University, a nursing degree from Eastern University, and a PhD in community engagement at Point Park University. So, Tia, we are honored to have you here today. Well, I'm honored to be in the presence of you wonderful men. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Tia. So, take us back to the beginning. You know, you were born in Philadelphia, right? Um, I think, you know, if you get into some of the earlier chapters in the book, it sounds like you had quite an experience growing up um, in some ways ideal, right? And obviously maybe in other ways, a little challenging. Yes. You know, I lived in these two different worlds. Um, I grew up in West Philadelphia, close walking distance to Drexel University and University of Penn. Um, I lived in a very eclectic household. Um, we were called the Earth Family. That was our nickname. You know, before Trader Joe's and Whole Foods, it was my mother and the co-op. And the co-op sat right at, um, on Drexel's campus. And my mother made an early, I mean, we were born into this lifestyle, but my, both my parents, um, they were Whole Foods, vegetarian, yogis, meditation, earth shoes. We were the exact opposite of the environment we grew up in. You know, my lunch boxes were filled with 
tofu sandwiches and peanut butter and honey and alfalfa sprouts and real juice or water where I envied my friends who were eating Stroman's bread and drinking little hug replica juices. You know, I had no idea, no clue then that what my mother planted in our early lives was actually saving our lives. I didn't appreciate it at that young age. But then our lives shifted. And, um, you know, it was in the 80s when the crack epidemic took over our neighborhoods. I've watched, including my family, go from hardworking, progressive families, doing well, enjoying life, not even understanding that we were poor. We didn't know we were poor. We didn't know we were living in poverty. It wasn't a poverty mindset. My mother was extremely progressive. We didn't have a TV. We did arts and culture. We walked to museums. We went to parks and cultural events. We had no clue. But the introduction of crack cocaine into our neighborhood, I watched everything be destroyed. So it was like this incredible, um, it's uplifting, healthy lifestyle that met up with a lifestyle that destroyed us in some ways. And as you went through this, and I think you talked about this early on in your book, you know, and I think a lot of children are this way, right? Like we live in these environments where we're somewhat protected, right? And I think a lot of that is, as you said, goes back to our parents and our environment, right? What, what did you notice, you know, as you started to see that shift in your neighborhood? And I think you also talked a little bit how you moved out of the neighborhood at the same time, but you were still in close proximity. So, I mean, you still got to experience it, right? So even at a young age, it sounds as if you were very cognizant of what was happening. Cognizant of what was happening, but very naive as a child would as how to remedy it. Remedy it. So for example, I remember when I started seeing the destruction in the community, you know, we played outside all the time. And then it came to a point where we couldn't go to the playground. There, you know, drug paraphernalia, the basketball hoops no longer existed. It literally, uh, it was this decaying of our community. And all I thought was, all you have to do is leave. I thought it was as simple as packing up and moving somewhere. And I could not wrap my head around. I would say to my mom, why don't we just go? All we have to do is walk out of the house, pack our stuff and go somewhere else. I had no clue about, okay, it takes resources. You need money. You know, you need all of these other things that now in my profession, when I think about the social determinants of health, that's what we were dealing with. Housing, safe, affordable housing, communities where you felt safe that you could walk around, access to resources, economic resources and opportunities. As a child, I didn't know that. I knew this was bad and it wasn't right, but I did not know the complexity in trying to escape it. It's not easy. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it sounds like it, part of that, that, I guess that process of escaping, you know, I think your mom and some of the things that she did early on gave you the foundation that would enable you to do that. So tell us a little bit about her because she sounds like quite an interesting character in your, your village. She, 
her presence, my mother passed away October 9th, 2012. And when I tell you that there are people that still reach out to us because of how she was larger than life. She was this petite little woman, 4'11", 100 pounds soaking wet, but her presence was huge. She made such an impact in every person's life that she connected with. I told you she was a radio disc jockey. She was a poet. She was an educator. She taught English literature. Her degrees were in um, English literature and, and creative writing. And so she just had this very unique, unique way about her. She truly lived life on her own terms, even our lifestyle. You know, you're in a health hostile world back in especially then when it wasn't sexy to you know you weren't recycling your paper bag brown bags you weren't going there like i said there were no trader joe's or whole foods this woman walked to the co-op every two to three days to make sure her children ate nothing out of a box nothing out of a can nothing out of a freezer she went to chinatown and she bought vows of ginseng and so in first grade i was popping ginseng ginseng before i would go to school you know there were just things about my mother that now when we look on it we're, we're reflecting on this time like she was the unicorn in our family and she didn't come from this background my mother taught herself how to live this way she married my father at 16 years old, 17 years old, and they lived a very eclectic lifestyle that went, a, went against the grain of the larger society. Who does that? My mother made our clothes. And I kept thinking like, wow, she had us at such a young age, but she, from um, a mindset, she was beyond her years. She read books all the time. Like we, we digested books. Even as adults, me, my mom, and my older sister, we would have our own little book, book club. It was something very special about my mother. And I think not having her and feeling the void of her absence, I actually am more cognizant and more filled, even though she's not here because everything she gave us, like, you know, I talked to you before, even in, in class about uh, Dr. Angela Duckworth's work in grit. My mother was the epitome of grit. She cultivated in, that in me and my siblings. Like there is something she would always, I, I mentioned a lot of her phrases in my book, you know, keep it moving, let forward and upward always be your motion. If you fall down, make sure you get back up. To struggle is to win. She taught me how to be a warrior. She taught me that to not accept the, the circumstances as the verdict. That even then, when you hit rock bottom, you can always rise up as long as you have breath in your body. Like she was my mentor. My mother, every single day before she passed away, when I entered corporate healthcare, called me every morning. I got a pep talk from my mother. When I walked through the doors of a building, I felt like I was invincible. I felt strong. I felt like there was nothing that I couldn't conquer. 
because of my mother's voice every morning telling me that. That's something powerful. And I realized that I was privy to have something powerful in my life, to have someone like my mother in my life. She taught me. That's why I'm here today with my faculties intact in spite of everything that I've gone through. You yeah. see, I get very passionate about this. <laughs> I, love, I love it. I love it. And, and, and I, I think, honestly, and we're going to dial back a little bit in terms of seeing you in class in some of those early doctoral classes. All right. And again, you know, when I was pushing for just get in the ballpark, Atia, Atia was pushing back and say, uh-uh, <laughs> we're going to dial this in and we're going to get it right. And I'm going to keep working until I get to that point. All right. And again, that quality and that power, you know, like you said, you could see it, all right, just being around you. All right. And, you know, that was something that was clearly evident. So if you go back, like you said, the Angela Duckworth and grit and perseverance, um, like you said, that's something that no doubt runs through your family. Right. And like you said, it's and it's what's continuing to propel you into the communities that you serve. Right. And I think that's why you're having the success that you're having. So I want to maybe shift a little bit to a little bit of a lighter note. Tell me about that first party, right? And I know, like you said, we're all kids, right? So we try to find the candy drawers, <laughs> right? Your mom had, had kind of that tight rein and the healthy. What about that first time you were so close to tasting what? <laughs> you know what? <laughs> I can taste it. My mouth just watered thinking about that moment. <laughs> and you wonder about the radars that your mothers have, right? <laughs> so in Philadelphia, you know, you think about what Philly known for. We're known for block parties and community gatherings out in the street. And we could play with the kids. We could, um, you know, just do everything we wanted except eat their food. And my mother would give us a lecture before we walked out. Yeah, you can go to the Daniels, but you better not eat the Daniels food. We're like, what, what she don't, what, it, you know, if she doesn't know, won't hurt her, whatever. So we get to their home and the Daniels, they fry their hot dogs. You ever have a fried hot dog and you smell the hot dog frying and then they have white bread. We were not allowed to eat white bread, let alone meat. We were strict, but like we didn't eat anything with meat in it. So I'm sitting in this tiny little kitchen in West Philly, this corner home, and this kitchen is tight. And I'm getting my hot dog ready. I got it on that piece of Stroman bread or bun or whatever it was. And I'm telling you, my mouth was watering. I got it up so close and I see my mom's little, you know, silhouette just coming through the kitchen. The fear, like people were afraid of my mother. She was so tiny, but she was so fearful. And I just looked like, how did this happen? Did somebody tell on me? You know, how could she walk in at the exact moment? And why was this opportunity to eat a hot dog ripped from me? I will never forget that moment. It is so clear and vivid in my mind, seeing my mother walk in that door and seeing me. I was so embarrassed, but I was, I would have felt better if I would at least been able to take a bite. She caught me just in time. 
I, I agree. How with does you. that happen? I don't know how they get that sense. I, I you know, I'm a father of three and, and yeah, I could see some things, but where the moms of the world, like you said, they just have this innate ability. <laughs> and you're right. My mom was the same way. She was all four foot 10 of her, but my goodness, <laughs> they, they uh, pack some power. They do. They do. I did get a fried hot dog, hot dog eventually. <laughs> That's good. Good, good, good. Very good. So where did your love from animals come from? Again, I'm the unicorn in the family, which is so interesting because I don't know where this intense, it wasn't just a love, it was intense. And no one liked animals. No one wanted a pet. Uh, my mother could not stand, especially cats. But I just, you know, it was first grade. I, I talk about it in the book in, in Miss Rhoda's class. And our class was like a mini zoo. We had all kinds of animals. And I would always raise my hand to take a pet home for the weekend, knowing that my mother would be so angry. But I did anyway. And I had this closet in my apart in our apartment building. Well, in our apartment, we had this large closet. It was large enough to fit a whole bunch of things in it, but small and not too big, you know, it couldn't be a bedroom. So I would put the animals in the closet and I would take care of turtles and rabbits. And it was just this intense love. And, you know, I had hamsters. She finally let me get a cat, but my love um, was very overwhelming for animals. I knew at a very young age that I wanted to spend my life caring for them. I wanted to become a veterinarian. Um, I needed to figure out, you know, how to save them. So in the winter time, we had a utility closet in our apartment building, and I was I would go out and I would round up cats, and I would hide them in the utility closet, and I would take my little bit of money, a few coins, and buy them cat food. Um, I did all kinds of things. Some cats survived the utility closet. Some cats, kittens didn't survive. You know, I would walk the street. My mother walked everywhere. She didn't own a car. And we walked all over Philadelphia. And I would see an animal on the street and I would want to examine it. And my mother would say, Atiyah, what are you doing? Get away from it. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm going to be a vet. So I have to learn how to help bring, you know, animals back to life. My mother didn't think that was funny. She thought it was disgusting. She didn't understand why her daughter was designed this way. And I remember one time going into eighth grade, my cat died, my first cat. And I was so distraught. And I told her that there was be no way I could go to school without giving my cat a proper burial. And she walked me to the West River Drive in Philadelphia, and I buried my cat and held a funeral service along the river. And then she wrote a note, and I went to school. And at that moment, my eighth grade teacher said, Atia, you must apply to Walter Biddlesaw High School of Agricultural Sciences. And that's exactly what I did. And I spent my four years of high school learning how to take care of a range of animals from small to large. We had a full-fledged farm across the street from our school. I did academics during the day, and I literally walked across the street and worked as a farmer. I learned to do everything from helping a cow deliver its calf to clipping the sharp teeth of a piglet to training horses. This girl from the 
hood in West Philly, would go to a farm school every single day to pursue my love. Ray, I, I just kind of, I'm just so intrigued. Um, and I apologize. I've made the mistake of leaving my window open to so my neighbors blowing leaves. So I hope you don't hear it, but uh, uh, it's one of those deals. But but um, your, your mother sounds amazing. And I had an amazing mother as well. And, uh, but your mother sounds amazing. And she sounds like she had such a impact on your life. And, but my question, I grew up in an era kind of, uh, I was the unicorn, but not in a good way. I grew up in the era of the late sixties and the seventies and drugs were, uh, it was, it was pretty common, but anyhow, I guess what I'm asking, and it sounds like your mother had such an influence, but, but there had to be something in you as well. How did you overcome like peer pressure and, and all this other uh, influence from uh, your neighborhood? And, and I've, I've been to Philly and I know that there, it, it can be quite challenging to overcome that. So I, I just what in you, uh, again, helped you? That's a great question, Dennis. You know, my, my husband asked that same question. And we just had this conversation. And I told him that, you know, some of us develop coping mechanisms and they, you know, exhibit in different ways. For me, my buffer was my imagination. So Dennis, when it got really tough, when our lives turned from literally heaven to hell, it was my imagination. I escaped through my mind, I would literally picture a different life. I would create, I told my husband, I created an entire community in my living room, in the apartment that we lived in. And I would pretend that I was somewhere else and I was around other people. And there were families that were intact and there were neighbors that still loved one another. In our apartment building, my mother took one of the in the entire back wall of the living room and she used a wallpaper that um they were meadows of flowers hills mountains and i would pretend that i would roll down those hills covered with flowers i literally used an environment that was destroying me and i used my imagination to escape it and, I, and that, that helped me through every phase of my life. It helped me through teenage pregnancy. So I may have not um, smoked cigarettes or indulged in any recreational drugs, hard drugs, whatever, alcohol. But I also became a teenage mom. And to get through teenage motherhood, um, it required me to imagine that I could still be okay. I, I could still be successful. I could still accomplish my dreams. Um, I was the least likely to get pregnant. I was who's who in America's junior high school students. I was an honor student. There were um, newspaper articles written about me and my academic success. I was a budding, I was a violinist since I was in fourth grade all the way to 12th grade. I was not the person that will become a teenage mom. And so that took away my ability to go to Texas A&M and study veterinary medicine. 
But the strong, that, that grit, that resilience, that power inside of me, but also my imagination to not give up, that there, there's still, you could still do what you need to do in this world. You could still become who you, you need to become. You could still walk in your purpose. And sometimes what separates me from someone else is that drive, that inner drive, something that no one can really give you. You can help create an environment for people to cultivate that within, but there's this internal drive that's inside of me that has always been driven. When you tell me that you're not going to make it a Tia because you're a teenage mom, I'm going to prove you wrong. You tell me that there's no way that you can do that. I'm going to prove you wrong. I was to prove you wrong. And sometimes that was healthy and sometimes it wasn't because I was so driven. But it has kept me. And I think it's something that we can help others cultivate. But that's what it was. My ability to imagine the possibilities even in the most dire situations. So Atiyah, I think, you know, you know, we tend to surround ourselves with like-minded individuals, you know, folks that, you know, like I said, are driven, right? And push forward regardless of those obstacles. And at the same time, you know, after you went through nursing school and you know, started working and, and you experienced a couple really major difficult moments in your life uh, with your family and your health, where, at what point or how long did it take to realize, as we kind of quoted earlier in your book, that your life also had to take precedence as well? You know, I remember the night that I was delivering a baby and I talk about this and, you know, write about this in the book and I could not read the clock. And I said, you know, the time of birth and especially for a mama, you know, that's important. So it was not a little thing that I couldn't read the clock. That's when I was really, really sick. And I walked out of that room and I thought about how I had been sick for weeks, but I was so concerned about saving other people. I was so concerned about helping mothers bring babies into the world. I was so concerned about, you know, ensuring that my family, the household was intact by showing up at work but I was willing to let myself crumble. And I remember that same night I couldn't see the clock is the night that I was admitted to the hospital into ICU an intensive care unit with a blood sugar over 1100. And to put it in perspective, um, you die with a blood sugar that high. People die with a blood sugar, not that high. And it was amazing that I was still conscious and so I said to myself, I can continue to run this race and be so driven to help other people. But if I do that, it will be at the, at the expense of me dying. My life has to be just as worthy of saving as anyone else's. And the only person that can control that is me. And that's where that comes from, a life worth saving. Like we each have to believe that we are so valuable, we mean so much that the same extension 
of grace and caring for others and doing for others that we have to deposit that into ourselves. And as a healthcare professional, as caregivers and any caregiving professional, sometimes we get it twisted. We deplete ourselves so much that we have nothing left to give. And we pretend that we're okay when we're actually crumbling on the inside. And I said, it has to stop because I can be more valuable to the world than I'm trying to save if I save myself first. And how do you, how do you get to that point though? You know, cause like you said, it, at times you, you know, that energy and that will and that drive to succeed and help others can almost be blinding. You know, how, how is it that, I mean, is it really a health scare that, I mean, that's going to make us hit the brakes? I mean, most of the time that's probably what it is, but how, you know, how do we in everyday life, you know, how do we kind of yes. rein things in? Well, the health scare is not sustainable because when you overcome the health scare, we, mo- we go back to the, the, what God is there in the first place. Like you remember these things for a moment. You know, I did a, a, a social media live last night and it, I read one of the chapters and the chapter was make every moment count. And I said to, you know, I said, you know, remember on January 26th and people don't remember they're like January 26th, what's that? Well, January 26th was the day that Kobe Bryant and his daughter Gianna and, you know, quite a few other families got on a helicopter. I guarantee you that they thought they were going to see their loved ones again. Guarantee you Kobe thought he was going to go home to his wife and other daughters. And his daughter was going to go home and all these other families. And in that moment on January 26, you saw social media. I'm going to make the most of every moment. I'm going to live my life to the fullest. I'm going to pursue my dreams. And then by February 26, we're back at the same way of living. You have to find something. And sometimes it's a daily pursuit of what is it that in this moment that you can hold on to. So the health scare went away. I got better. I'm healthier today, 20 plus years later than I was then. And I have progressive illnesses. I am not supposed to be in the state of health that I'm in. But what has kept me is the reminder of something else. So the health scare is not sustainable. What is your something else? What, is, what can you hold on to? that will motivate you to do things differently every day. And understanding that every day you're not gonna be motivated to live your quote unquote best life. You're not gonna do things that save your life, like what you eat, what you drink, what you think, what you do. We don't do it, I don't even do it. But I never let myself get so off track that I find myself in a downward spiral. Now, there were points in my life where I did. When I lost my son, I could care less about saving my life. To be honest, I didn't want to live. I wanted to die. So I had to find something at the lowest point of my life that would keep me living. And so what I do now because of that, and not saying that that's a very drastic life-altering situation, but in my case, I keep saying to myself, I need to do what my son, my mother, and my two brothers are no longer able to do. 
and that's to live. I created, you know, you talk about, you know, creating your life plan, your daily plan. I, you have to cultivate something to create sustainability. And sometimes what we don't do, we fail to cultivate it. We fail to cultivate the practices. So even while I'm caring for my aunt who's in home hospice for the next week or two, every single day, I go outside for a bike ride. I know that if I don't, if I'm not intentional about it, I'm not going to cultivate it. And then two weeks later, I'm going to still be in this space of not caring for myself or not saving my life. So do something as simple as every single morning, uh, Dr. Mulvihill, when you wake up, is there a bottle of water at your nightstand? The very first thing that I do is drink water when I wake up two glasses to be exact. And that's something simple. There are some simple life hacks that we can incorporate every day that attributes to saving our lives. And then when we get there, we take a note from my mother's book. She said, Atia, when you have a moment, sit in it. Don't let somebody tell you to get out of it. You sit in it, but you got five minutes. Maybe your five minutes is a day. But what I won't do is sit in a moment for a long period of time. Cultivate it and create it. And that's how you create sustainability. Dr. A, um, man, I can relate so much. I was, uh, I was a pastor for 20 years and uh, recently retired from that and just mostly focus on uh, education. But, but you're, you're right. When you're in a position like that, you just give and give and give of yourself and to the point of almost self-destruction. But there's this expect expectation from other people to take, take, take. And I don't think people that haven't been in that position may not understand that. And many of the people you're dealing with don't understand that. So my question is, is how do you protect yourself or how do you uh, let people know that there's that line that you got to say, wait a minute, I'm not going past that line uh, to self-destruction. Because in reality, I could tell you right now, when I, your mental health, it plays on your mental health, which then hits your uh, physical health really hard. How do, you, how do you let people know, hey, stop? Yes. So I was one of those give, 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 give. And if I don't give, then what will people think about me? If I don't give, will people think that I'm being selfish? If I don't give, how is that really being a servant leader? But guess what? Um, you got to fuel up too. You can't give from an empty vessel. And that's a reminder to myself, like Atia, what are you giving from? You're on E. So what, what more do you have to give? So I learned how to set boundaries and that is very hard, especially for someone like me who is a caregiver by nature. I'm trying to save animals. Then I went to saving people. Like it truly is coursing through my veins to serve and to give. At the same time, I learning how to set boundaries saved my life. You're talking about saving your life. That saved my life. And without guilt. Because see, there's a problem. Sometimes we set boundaries, but then we have guilt. Well, that's also destructive to your mental and physical state. So I set boundaries guilt-free. 
And I've learned to, you know, we talk about the conditions of satisfaction. And I kind of use that in different parts of my life. There are certain conditions of satisfaction that I have in my life. And one, that means that I have to be fulfilled. And the other thing is that maybe this is my giving season. And I would say to myself, you can always do something for a season. So maybe you have to sacrifice a season, but don't let your season turn into a year. Don't let your season change into another season. So whether your season is a day of caring for someone or serving, whether your season is spending two weeks helping your sister care for your aunt that's on home hospice, whether your season is helping people to survive this pandemic, the season has to have an end date. And in the idea of setting boundaries, you also have to have your self-care um, time. So I set boundaries, I serve, but then I have my replenishment. So how do we incorporate these different parts? Setting the boundaries, creating your ways of replenishing your spirit, your body, and being okay, letting it go, guilt-free, no strings attached. And then at some times I'll say, you know what, I can't help you. I can't serve. I can't do this. But I know some, I know I have a resource for you. I have become really good with sending you to a resource or someone else who has the capacity. And I'm also cognizant when I'm asking someone else to serve me or help me, I will always ask, do you have the capacity? See, there's a thing called stress dumping. Sometimes we don't even realize we do it, but we do it. Some people call it venting. But sometimes we should ask, do you have the capacity for me to share this with you, what's heavy on me? Do you have the capacity to help me? Do you have the, doing that gives the person permission to say, I, I don't have the capacity right now, but I may be able to help you then, or I may be able to point you to a resource. I wish I would have heard this 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, a lot of us do that very thing, right? We just kind of walk into our colleague's office or pick up the phone or text and we just drop, right? And like yes. you said, you know, they, you know, they might be more willing to listen, but they may be in a moment where they're struggling as well. And you know what, maybe they just need a few, a few extra breathing room and then they can get to you. But you're right, that's... That's a really good point. And to circle back, you know, I, I really appreciate what you said in terms of cultivating the moment, but then being present in that moment, even just like you said, for that five minutes. And I notice even during you know, this pandemic stretch, I find myself probably being more present, right? Even if I'm just watching our kids or doing the dishes or doing laundry for the 50th time that day. <laughs> I, I just find myself enjoying those moments more than I normally would instead of picking up my phone and trying to multitask. Um, and, and I don't know if I'm just getting older, but like you said, I, I, I think I'm valuing, valuing that time more than I would have in the past. There is something beautiful in the stillness that when before pre-COVID, we weren't able to experience. Yeah. And you are getting older, Patrick. <laughs> I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. <laughs> so I do, I do have to ask Adia. So how, how is your husband doing with the dogs? 
Oh, that's hysterical. So that's what everyone's worried about. Um, he is struggling. Uh, <laughs> he, he called last night and he said, you know, we just sit here. We're both sitting and staring out the window. <laughs> so it's just... <laughs> Um, he's a, he reminds me that the, you know, this is your dog. Um, we lost one dog, Dory, um, but we still have Nemo, Nemo and Dory and Nemo has been, you talk about, um, you know, having those things that help save your life. This dog, um, has helped save my life for the past 12 years. And so, uh, they're both struggling without me, but they're both still breathing. So that's a good sign. That's good. Great. That's great. Because like you said, I know he wasn't necessarily the fondest of animals, right? But um, as you can see in the book, like you said, he, he understood the, the purpose and reason and why you really wanted them. And like I said, we, yes. we eventually acquiesce and we learn. Yes, yes, <laughs> and, you do. <laughs> we do. We do. So right now, you know, you have your consulting business, right? And you're doing a lot of speaking. You know, what's, what's in the future? you know, for the next year or so for Atia? That's a great question. Well, I am working on some very critical community initiatives. Um, the COVID, uh, the pandemic, and the social injustices, they have truly excavated um, our complacency as a society. And so there's a momentum and an energy around how do we truly help um, people and communities transform. And I'm not, we're not talking about throwing grant money to one issue, but we're talking about how do we really get down to the system side of this and how do we equip people with resources and, uh, you know, power and influence and everything that they need to truly change the trajectory of their communities. And so I am working um, with, with a few organizations right now on this larger initiative um, to do just that. So I'm excited because that is truly my purpose and my passion. Um, I am going to uh, start my own uh, YouTube channel to really get my messages out there. Um, there's another book in me um, that's based on my leading with well-being platform. You know, I talk, I talk a lot about myself, share my journey in this first book, A Life Worth Saving. I share a few of the lessons. But now, even in our conversation this morning, how do we activate those lessons? How do we truly lead with well-being? We talk a lot about it, but how do you, how do you truly cultivate and create sustainable change within your lives. And so I think this next book will really elevate that conversation and give people practical approaches um, so that they can um, do just that. Awesome. Well, that is one thing that we will certainly continue to do for you is, again, include in our show notes and, and make sure that people know how to find you, uh, both on LinkedIn. Right. Um, and we'll keep spreading a word because, like I said, the work you're doing is amazing. Um, you have an incredible story. And I think, like you said, you're not only passionate, but, you know, I think you get a true sense of authenticity and courage actually, in what you bring to the table. So I know Angelo has a few questions, so I'm going to let him step in. Great. Dr. A, I have really enjoyed listening to you speak today. I, I have like this new 
I, I, honestly, the last couple of days have been a struggle for me. Uh, I teach and you always have to kind of maintain this positive attitude for the students. You don't want them to see, you know, when their instructor is, you know, maybe just overwhelmed or whatever it is. And honestly, like this, this experience this morning with you has kind of resolved some of the tension in me just to, to feel like some inspiration. Um, and, and really, I'm, I'm curious just to, to ask you this, you know, every day I start, I liked what you talked about, uh, almost like living in the moment, take a moment to um, appreciate what you've accomplished or just to live in, in, uh, be in, in the stillness, I think you said. Every day that I run one of my classes, I actually congratulate my class for making it as far as they did. Like we're in week eight right now. So this week I congratulate them. I said, hey, we're in the middle of a pandemic. You made it to week eight. Like you should be stoked to be here still, right? Um, and I, I don't think people do that enough and just take a moment to like be really, really stoked for what they are doing in the moment. So my question for you is, is what are you stoked about? Like, what are you grateful for right now in this moment? You know, last night's reading was make every moment count. So you are so spot on, Angelo. And, you know, for me, it's um, getting in touch with a sense of gratitude for this moment. Last night, I said, I could say I have to go to Philadelphia and help my sister take care of my aunt who's on home hospice. Or I could reframe it and say, I get to. So I get stoked that I get to, in the midst of a pandemic, serve. That I get to, in the midst of, of, of a pandemic, give. Like, I, I get to do this. Like, I can tell you when I wake up, because a lot of times we wake up and we're so mechanical in our way of being. We run, go through the motions, wake up, get a cup of coffee, you know, read the news, listen to the news, get dressed and going about our business. But I am cognizant that today somebody didn't wake up. So I always try to remind myself somebody today didn't wake up. Somebody woke up and their faculties weren't intact. Somebody woke up and they did not get to care for their loved one because their loved one is no longer here. So I have reframed my whole outlook on what I get to do. And that in and of itself gets me in touch with gratitude. Like I'm grateful that I have a sister that has opened her home to my aunt. So what are the things that I can be grateful for? My mother used to always say, there's always room below. So even when you think you hit rock bottom, guess what? There's a rock, rock bottom. There is somebody on this earth right now that does not have the luxuries that you have. They didn't wake up and they didn't have a roof over their head or food in their mouth. And sometimes, although we know that, we know that, we don't actually internalize it to shift how grateful we are for what we have. I will never forget what my mom said about that. So even when I want to go into my wallowing or my pity party, I say to myself, Atiyah, there's room below. What are you grateful for right now? Somebody lost all of their children. I'm cognizant of that. Somebody did not have the opportunity to, to have a mother so it's, it's this constant um, reframing and looking at my situation in a different way. 
I'm not saying I do that every day. I'm going to be honest with you. Some days I'm like, this sucks. Then I take another page from my mother's book. Let it suck for five minutes and get over it. I feel like your next book after the next one should maybe be like a book of like her one-liners and wisdom. Like, geez, I'd put it behind me and add it to like my collection of like just awesome random things. Like I'm just blown away by the advice um, that you've gained from your mother. And and it's amazing that you're sharing it with so many other people, you know? Um, And I I just think that I really uh, resonate with living in the moment and changing the framework of how you think. I actually just talked to my class the other day and just said it to them this way. A photographer, if they go out, they bring all their equipment, they go on a scene and and they're, they're taking a shot and there's something in their shot that isn't ideal right? Something's blocking it or it's an obstruction. What are they going to do? They could just pack up and say, you know what? Didn't work out today. We're not taking the shot. No, no. You're just going to change the perspective. Just move the camera a little bit. It's so that that's no longer in the frame. It's still there. It didn't go anywhere. Like you might have to deal with it at some point, but it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to take away everything in that moment, what you're doing. I appreciate you, uh, Dr. A in this moment and, and being here today. Honestly, I needed this conversation. I appreciate you. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Dennis. Yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> you have such a beautiful energy and you're so inspiring. And the reason I say that is that I, again, it's not about me today, but I grew up in a very drug infested, uh, a very bad area and very negative. And I mean, I could just go on and on and on. And and how listening to you today and just if I could have had somebody like you telling me something different, I may have taken a different path. You know, I didn't, I didn't find out until late in life, in my late 20s, that, you know, I, was, I hit that rock bottom. And I finally said, wow, I got to change my life. And, and, and I'm not going to get into how about my past life, but it was pretty bad up to that point. And it just got better after that, after I changed my attitude. And I love your, your philosophy. I love how you've uh, embraced your mother's philosophy, but I have to say this, keep doing what you're doing because I think you inspire many people who didn't like myself, who didn't have that opportunity. You will inspire them to have that opportunity to not have to go through the pain and the suffering that they that the that society can put on them and i think that you can make a huge difference you you've been and again i hate to sound cheesy but you've been you've been put on this earth to do something Mm -hmm. fantastic and something wonderful so continue doing what you're doing i'm glad that you have the passion that you do you have the wisdom that you have and uh i tell you what you inspired me today and uh you'll be in my prayers that uh you'll just continue to do this work. I appreciate and receive that, Dennis. Thank you. So, Dr. A, you have a quote. Um, it says, if you don't like the way the world is, you change it. And you have an obligation to change it, and you change it one step at a time. And I think the words that you talked about today, especially intentionality and living in a moment, really underpin that idea of one step at a time, right? Because it's not just about pushing forward 
and going 100 miles an hour and having this immediate large impact, you know, because we all can't do that and it's not healthy to do so. It's that constant grit, perseverance, day by day, I'm going to keep fighting for myself and for my team and those around me and especially even those that are on the periphery of my sphere of influence that I don't even know are following, but they're watching or listening. And I think you typify that. Mm. And, you know, as Dennis said, and as Angelo said, we look forward with great excitement as your journey continues. And no doubt we're going to be here to have you back when you release the second book and the third book and the fourth book. And everything else <laughs> in the book with your mother's, uh, you know, that's work right. With. You have to get that out there. I am. You spoke that, Angela. I'm doing it. <laughs> I'll so, buy it first. <laughs> absolutely. Put us down for the pre order. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. So, any final thoughts, Dr. A? Uh, we want to close with any final words of wisdom that you want to share mm. uh, with our listeners. Because um, anything that I say certainly will not do it justice. Yeah. Yes. We're all on an adventure. My dad talks about an adventure all the time, the good times and the bad times. At one point, our adventure will end. And so something that I do every single night before I go to bed is I say to myself, what did you do today, Atia, that made you smile or brought a smile to someone else's face? And if we can guide our daily lives with touching one person, doesn't have to be this huge magnitude, this life altering, but it's just that you help somebody look at life a little bit different. You served a little, you gave to yourself. If you can go to bed with that smile on your face, knowing that you've done that, you are living the adventure. It is our duty to ring the life out of life. Don't leave any drops left. Very well. Yeah, I would have loved, uh, other than the tofu, I would have loved to have been at your house <laughs> on Thanksgiving. Um, I think it would have been a, a great time. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, I appreciate you all for having me. This was definitely the highlight of my morning. You brought a smile to my face and I hope I, I've done the same. Absolutely. You have. And again, we thank you for taking the time to join us here on the show this morning, Atia. And uh, we will certainly make sure to have you back in the future because we'll, we'll definitely want to see you know, how your journey is playing out. So, thank you. I look forward to it. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for tuning in uh, to the latest episode uh, with Dr. Atia. And as she said very eloquently, live life. Right? Go out there, be the change, make the change. And again, it doesn't have to be all done today or tomorrow, right? It's a journey. You know, it takes time. So live in the moment and enjoy the process. And uh, we will see you on the next episode. Thank you, everybody.